0: Welcome to another special episode of Reading by the Pool. As always, I'm your host, TinkerBuff, and I'll be here to make you cozy in your mind's pool, whether that's heating up or cooling down, whatever you want to do, it's your choice. Today we're going to be reading a short story by E.F. Benson, who first published this story in 1912, Edward Frederick Benson was a very versatile writer who produced a large body of work, including several biographies with a lot of his horror works. He wrote a large number of ghost stories, and actually the author H.P. Lovecraft was impressed enough by his work that he specifically mentioned him in his own essay called Supernatural Horror in Literature. So today I'll be reading to you the short story called Caterpillars by E.F. Benson. I saw a month or two ago, in an Italian paper, that the Villa Cascana in which I once stayed had been pulled down, and that a manufactory of some sort was in the process of erection on its site. There is, therefore, no longer any reason for refraining from writing of those things which I myself saw, or... Perhaps imagined I saw, in a certain room, on a certain landing of this villa in question, nor from mentioning the circumstances which followed, which may or may not, according to the opinion of the reader, throw some light on, or be somehow connected with this experience. The Villa Cascano was in all ways but one, a perfectly delightful house, yet, if it were standing now, nothing in the world, I use this phrase in its most literal sense, would induce me to set foot in it again, for I believe that it had to be haunted in a very terrible, impractical manner. Most ghosts, when all is said and done, do not do much harm. They may perhaps terrify, but the person whom they visit usually gets over their visitation. They may on the other hand be entirely friendly or beneficent. But the appearances in the Villa Cascana were not beneficent, and they had not made their visit in a very slightly different manner. I do not suppose I should have I, 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 so not have got over it any more than Arthur Inglis did. But the house stood on an ilex clad hill not far from Sestri de Levante of the Italian Riviera. Looking out over the iridescent blues of that enchanted sea, while behind it rose the pale green chestnut woods that climb up the hillsides till they give place to the pines that, black in contrast with them, crown the slopes all around it in the garden of the luxuriance of mid-spring bloomed, and it was fragrant, and the scent of magnolian rose born on the salt freshness of the winds from the sea, flowing like a stream through the cool vaulted rooms. On the ground floor was a broad-pillared loggia ran around three sides of the house, the top of which formed a balcony for certain rooms on the first floor. The main staircase broad and of gray marble steps had led up the hall to the landing outside these rooms, which were three in number, namely the two big sitting rooms and the bedroom arranged in suite. The later was unoccupied as the sitting rooms were in use for these main staircases were continued to the second floor, which were situated certain bedrooms, one of which I occupied, while the other side of the first floor landing, some half a dozen steps, led to another suite of rooms where at the time I am speaking of was Arthur Inglis, the artist. He had his bedroom and studio. Thus, the landing outside my bedroom at the top of the house commanded both the landing of the first floor and also the steps that led to Inglis's room. Now, Jim Stanley and his wife, finally whose guest I was, occupied rooms in another wing of the house, were also were the servants' quarters. I arrived just in time for lunch on a brilliant noon of mid-May. The garden was shouting with color and fragrance, and not less delightful after my broiling walk up from the marina. Should have been the coming from the reverberating heat and blaze of the day into the marble coolness of the villa, only, the reader has my bare word for this and nothing more, the moment I set foot in the house I felt that something was wrong. This feeling, I may say, was quite vague, though very strong, and I remember that when I saw letters waiting for me on the table in the hall, I felt certain that the explanation was here. I was convinced that there was some sort of bad news for me yet. When I opened them, I found no explanation of my premonition, no, no my correspondence all reeked of prosperity. Yet this clear miscarriage of presentment did not dissipate my uneasiness. In that cool, fragrant house... There had to be something wrong. I am at pains to mention this because to the general view it may explain that though I am as a rule so excellent a sleeper that the extinction of my light on getting into bed is apparently contemporaneous with being called on the following morning. I slept very badly, though, on my first night in the Vila Cascana. It may also explain the fact that when I did sleep, if it indeed in sleep, that I saw what I saw, I dreamed a very vivid in original manner, original that is to say in the sense that something that, as far as I knew, had never previously entered into my consciousness, usurped it then. But since in addition to this evil premonition, certain words and events occurred during the rest of the day, Might have suggested something of what I thought had happened that night, and it will be well to relate them now. After lunch, then I went around the house with Miss Stanley, and during our tour she referred, it is true, to the unoccupied bedroom on the first floor which opened out of the room, which is where we had lunched. We left that unoccupied she said because Jim and I have a charming bedroom and dressing room as you saw in the wing and if we used it ourselves we should have to turn it into a dining room as you saw in the wing and if we used it ourselves we would turn the dining room into a dressing room and have our meals downstairs. As it is however we have our little flat here. Arthur Inglis has his little flat in the other passage, and I remembered, aren't I extraordinary, that you once said that the higher up you were in the house, the better you were pleased, so I put you up at the top of the house instead of giving you that room there. It is true that a doubt, vague as my uneasy premonition, crossed my mind, I did not see why Miss Stanley should have explained all this, if there had not been more to explain. I allow, therefore, that the thought that there was something to explain about the unoccupied bedroom was momentarily present in my mind. The second thing that may have borne on my dream was this at dinner. The conversation turned for a moment on ghosts. Now Inglis, with the certainty of conviction, expressed his belief that anybody who could possibly believe in the existence of supernatural phenomena was unworthy of the name of an ass. The subject instantly dropped from there. As far as I can recollect, nothing else occurred or was said that could bear on what follows. We all went to bed rather early, and I personally yawned my way upstairs, feeling hideously sleepy. My room was rather hot, and I threw all the windows wide, and, and from, without, poured in the white light of the moon, and the love song of many nightingales. I undressed quickly and got into bed, but though I had felt so sleepy before, I now felt extremely wide awake. But I was quite content to be awake. I did not toss or turn, I felt perfectly happy, listening to the song and seeing the light. Then, it is possible I may have gone to sleep, and, and what follows, yes, may have been a dream. I thought, anyhow, that after a time, the nightingales ceased singing and the moon sank. I thought also that if, for some unexplained reason, I was going to lie awake at night, I might as well read. And I remember that i had left a book in which I was interested in the dining room on the first floor. So I got out of bed, lit a candle, and I went downstairs. I went into the room... Saw on the side table the book that I had come to look for, and then simultaneously saw that the door into the unoccupied bedroom was open. A curious grey light, not of dawn or of moonshine, came from it. And I looked in. The bed stood just opposite of the door. A big four-poster hung with tapestry at the head. Then I saw that the greyish light of the bedroom came from the bed. For it was... There's something now... Are on the bed, it was covered with great caterpillars a foot or more in length which crawled over it. They were faintly luminous, and it was the light from them that showed me the room. Instead of the sucker feet of ordinary caterpillars, they had rows of pincers like crabs, and they moved by grasping what they lay on their pincers and then sliding their bodies forward. In color, these dreadful insects were yellowish and gray, and they were covered with irregular lumps and swellings. There must have been hundreds of them, for they formed a sort of writhing, crawling pyramid on the bed. Occasionally one fell off onto the floor with a soft, fleshy thud, and though the floor was hard of concrete, it yielded to the pincer feet, as though it had been putty. In crawling back, the caterpillar would mount onto the bed again, to rejoin its fearful companions. But they appeared to have no faces, so to speak, but at one end of them there was a mouth that opened sideways in respiration." Then, as I looked, it seemed to me as if they all suddenly became conscious of my presence. All the mouths, at any rate, were turned in my direction and next moment they began dropping off the bed with those soft fleshy thuds onto the floor and wriggling towards me for one second a paralysis as of a dream was on me but the next i was running upstairs again to my room and i remember feeling the cold of the marble steps on my bare feet i rushed into my bedroom and slammed the door behind me and then i was certainly wide awake now I found myself standing by my bed with the sweat of terror pouring from me. The noise of the banged door still rang in my ear, but as would have been more useful if this had been a mere nightmare, the terror that had been mine when I saw those foul beasts crawling about the bed and dropping softly onto the floor did not cease. Then, awake now, if dreaming before, I did not at all recover from the horror of this dream. It did not seem to me at all that I had dreamed. And until dawn, I sat and stood, not daring to lie down, thinking that every rustle every movement that i heard was the approach of these caterpillars to them and the claws that bit into the cement the wood of the door was child's play steel would not even be able to keep them out but with the sweet and noble return of day the horror vanished the whisper of wind became benign yet again the nameless fear whatever it was was smoothed out and terrified me no longer Dawn broke, hueless at first, then it grew, dove-colored, then the flaming pageant of light spread over the sky. The admirable rule of the house was that everybody had breakfast where and when he pleased. And in consequence, it was not until lunchtime that I met any of the other members of our party. Since I had breakfast at my balcony, and wrote letters, and other things to lunch, in fact, I got down to that meal rather late. After the other three had begun, between my knife and fork, there was a small pillbox of cardboard. And as I sat down, English spoke. Do look at that, he said, since you are interested in natural history, I found it crawling on my counterpane last night and I didn't know what it was I think that before I opened the pillbox I expected something of the sort which I found inside inside anyhow was a small caterpillar grayish yellow in color with curious bumps and excretions on its rings it was extremely active and hurried around the box this way and that its feet were unlike any caterpillar I ever saw they were like pincers of a crab I looked down and I shut the lid no I don't know it, I said, but it looks rather unwholesome. W- what are you going to do with it? Oh, I shall keep it, said Inglis. It has begun to spin. I want to see what sort of moth it turns into. I opened the box again and saw that these hurrying movements were indeed the beginning of the spinning of the web of its cocoon. Then Inglis spoke again. It has got funny feet, though. They're like crab's pincers. What's the Latin for Crab. Ah, yes, uh, cancer. So, in case it's unique, let's, let's christen it Cancer Inglisinis. In <laughs> then something happened in my brain, some momentary piecing together all that I had seen or dreamed. Something in the words seemed to me to throw light on all of it, and my own intense horror at the experience of the night before linked itself onto what he had now just said. In effect, I took the box and threw it, caterpillar and all, out the window. There was a gravel path just outside and beyond it, a fountain playing into a basin, and the box fell into the middle of this. English laughed. <laughs> so the students of the occult don't like solid facts. Oh, my poor caterpillar. The talk went off again at once onto other subjects, and I have only given in detail as they happened, these trivialities in order to be sure myself that I recorded everything that could have been born on occult subjects or on the subject of caterpillars. But at that moment when I threw the pillbox into the fountain... I lost my head. My only excuse is that, as is probably plain, the tenant of it was, in miniature, exactly what I had seen crowded onto the bed of the unoccupied room. As though this translation of these phantoms into flesh or blood, or whatever it is that the caterpillars are made of, ought perhaps to have relieved the horror of the night. As a matter of fact it did nothing of this kind, it only made the crawling pyramid that covered on the bed and thus unoccupied room more hideously real. After lunch, we spent a lazy hour or two strolling about the garden or sitting in the loggia, and it must have been about 4 o'clock when Stanley and I started off to bathe down the path that led by the fountain into which I had thrown the pillbox. The water was shallow and clear, and at the bottom of it, I saw its white remains. The water had disintegrated the cardboard, and it became more than a few strips and shreds of sodden paper. The center of the fountain was marble Italian cupid, which squirted the water out of its wineskin it held under its arms, and crawling up its legs was, in fact, a caterpillar. Strange and scarcely credible as it seemed, it must have survived the falling to bits of its prison, and made its way to shore, and there it was, out of arm's reach, weaving and waving this way, and that as it evolved its cocoon. Then as I looked at it, It seemed to me again like that caterpillar I had seen last night. It saw me. And breaking out of the threads that it surrounded, it crawled down the marble leg of the Cupid and began swimming like a snake across the water of the fountain towards me. It came with an extraordinary speed. The fact of a caterpillar being able to swim at all was new to me. And in the moment was crawling upon the marble lip of the basin. Just then, English joined us. (laughs) Ha! Why, if it isn't my old Cancer Inglintius again, he said, catching sight of the beast. What a tearing hurry it is in! We were standing side by side on the path, and when the caterpillar advanced within about a yard of us, it stopped, and began waving again, as if in doubt, as to the direction it should go. Then it appeared to make up its mind, and crawled onto Inglis's shoe. (laughs) it likes me best, but I don't really know that I like it, as uh, it won't drown, I think, perhaps, he said. He shook it off his shoe onto the gravel path and trod on it. All afternoon the air got heavier and heavier with the Soroko that was without a doubt coming up from the south, and that night again I went up to bed feeling very sleepy, but below my drowsiness, so to speak, there was the consciousness, stronger than before, that there was something very wrong with this house. But I fell asleep at once, and how long after, I do not know, either woke or dreamed, I awoke, feeling that I must get up at once or I should be too late. Then, dreaming or awake, I lay and fought this fear, telling myself that I was but the prey of my own nerves, disordered by the southern wind or what not, and at the same time quite clearly knowing in another part of my mind, so to speak, that every moment's delay added only to the danger. At last, the second feeling became irresistible, and I put on a coat and trousers and went out of my room to the landing. And then I saw that I had already delayed too long and that I was now too late. The whole of the landing of the first floor below was invisible under the swarm of caterpillars that crawled there. The folding doors into the sitting room from which opened the bedroom where I had seen them last night were shut, but they were squeezing through the cracks of it, dropping one by one through the keyhole, elongating themselves into mere strings as they passed, and growing fat and lumpy again on emerging. Some, as if exploring, were nosing about the steps into the passage at the end of which were Inglis' room. Others were crawling on the lowest steps of the staircase that led up to where I stood. The landing, however, was completely covered with them. I, I was cut off. In the frozen horror that seized me when I saw that, I can give no idea in words. Then at last a general movement began to take place, and they grew thicker on the steps that then led to Inglis' room. Gradually, like some hideous tide of flesh, they advanced along the passage, and I saw foremost visible by the pale gray luminousness that came from them reach his door. Again and again, I tried to shout and warm him in terror. All the time, they would turn at the sound of my voice and mount my stairs instead. But for all my efforts, I felt that no sound came from my throat. They crawled along the hinge crack of his door, passing through as they had done before, and still I stood there, making impotent efforts to shout to him to bid him escape while there was still time. At last, the passage was completely empty. They'd all gone, and at that moment I was conscious for the first time of the cold of the marble landing on which I stood barefooted. The dawn was just beginning to break in the eastern sky. Six months after I met Miss Stanley in the county house in England, we talked on many subjects, and at last she said, "'I don't think I've seen you since you got that dreadful news about Arthur Inglis a month ago.' "'I haven't heard,' said I. "'No?' Oh, well, he's got cancer. They don't even advise an operation, for there is no hope of a cure. He is riddled with it, the doctors say. Now, during all these six months, I do not think a day had passed on which I had not in my mind the dreams, or whatever you'd like to call them, which I had seen in the Villa Cascana. It is awful, is it not? she continued. And I feel I can't help feeling that he may have caught it in the villa, I asked. She looked at me with blank surprise. Why, Why did you say that? she asked. How did you know? Then she told me, in the unoccupied bedroom a year before, there had been a fatal case of cancer. She had, of course, taken the best advice and had been put told that the utmost dictates of prudence would be obeyed as long as she did not put anybody else asleep in this room, which had also had been thoroughly disinfected and newly whitewashed and painted. However, I opened the room. Alright guys, that's the end of Caterpillars by E.F. Benson. I hope you guys enjoyed this short and strange tale about these silly caterpillars. Alright, that's all. I'll see you guys next week.